Hey folks, Rich from Trapping Inc. TV here. And I bet you're just like me, and the day can't start without that first cup of coffee. For me, it's Stout Maple. Old Smoke Coffee's darkest roast. Strong, aromatic, and smooth. That gets me revved up and ready for whatever the day throws at me. Old Smokes roast their coffee over wood fires, the old-fashioned way. Wood roasting takes time, much longer than modern hot air roasting. Slow roasting over wood takes the bitter out of the bean and imparts a heavenly taste and aroma from the wood used. Old Smokes makes a perfect roast for each person. There are five roasts from light to extra dark, each roasted over a different wood for a unique flavor. Right now you can order from their online store and use our promo code RICH, that's R-I-C-H, and get a free travel bottle on any purchase of $45 of coffee, excluding the Wounded Warriors blend. Just go to oldsmokescoffee.com that's O-L-E, smokescoffee.com. Use the promo code RICH. In these trying times, everybody's trying their best to adapt. Old Smokes is changing the promo rewards every couple of weeks, but every time, from now on, use RICH for the code. RICH will be the only promo code going forward, and what the heck, it's a lot less spelling on that silly phone screen. And now, back to today's show. Welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast. Today we have a very special and very pertinent uh guest. This is Mark Downey and he is the Chief Executive Officers for Fur Harvesters International and or would they be just Fur Harvesters Auction? Fur Harvesters Auction. All right, I got it wrong. We're, we're international as well. Yeah, I know you are. Internationally. <laughs> How are you today, Mark? I'm very good, Rich. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Oh, we're, we're pleased to have you. It's not very often that you get to do something that is uh, so so time-worthy as, as what's going on right now. We just had such a huge upset in the fur world with uh, uh, North American Fur Auctions leaving, uh, you know, declaring bankruptcy last fall. And, and what was, what was that going to do to the sales? There were so many people that were so upset that there was, you know, we weren't going to be able to sell our fur and we might as well quit trapping. And, you know, I, I think most people were, were of the same mind that, uh, nature abhors a, a vacuum and that there would be plenty of other people come in and, and take care of things. And it was, it was amazing in, in actual fact. I, I don't know the rest of the, of the country, but I know in Alberta, all of a sudden we had so many more options. There were so many buyers that were, you know, and uh, of course, in the end, everybody ships you for, for the auction. Well, to answer your question, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a lot to take on, but you have to understand, like, in the West, Alberta, Saskatchewan, BC was always a stronghold for Napa. Right. Whereas you go northern Canada, like in the territories of Nunavut, Northwest Territories, and the Yukon, and from basically Ontario East has always been our stronghold. So we've we seen a big void, like, when, when Napa went under bankruptcy protection there. We, we realized we had a, a real, uh, we had to put a game face on to come to deal with Western Canada. And that's why we took on, you know, getting married and taking on the thing in Winnipeg. So our big growth, our big growth came from, from Western Canada, right where you are right now. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's start out uh, kind of in the beginning and you start as a trapper. I mean, what, what's your personal history before you got into international fur trade? <laughs> I guess if I back it up far enough, I uh, grew up in a small town called Maydock, Ontario, just kind of between Toronto and Ottawa, just north of Belleville, just north of Daquinney. My grandfather owned, probably at the time, Canada's one of Canada's largest gun stores. He was a collection agent for the Ontario Trapper Association. So in those years, um, 
they used to seal for the game wardens would come in at, on last receiving days, my grandfather's store, which represented like Tweed District, Bancroft area. And all the furs had to be sealed like with a, with a stamp. And I remember as a little kid in, in kindergarten, I had the afternoons off and I always went in the afternoons to my grandfather's store. He, I, they basically looked after me and I was putting sights on guns at a really young age and stuff <laughs> like this. And anyway, when uh, the days last receiving days came, I would, my job was to go in there and flip the beaver belts so the game warden could seal them and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, there was, there was the guys that wanted to ship to the OTA, left their fur in there, it was sealed, and, and uh, the game wardens put back in the bag and put in the, the basement in a, in a big cool, like cool, cool storage there. And anybody that didn't want to, it wasn't very many, they took it outside and there was like, the competition was there. There were some private fur buyers. There was a Hudson's Bay company, which turned later turned into Napa. But I, I, that's how I got my, I guess my connect with with the fur with the fur business, and I got to know some pretty pretty big trappers. And as I grew up, um, my mom got a job when I'd be about grade five, I guess. She moved to a place called Sunner, just north, just south of North Bay. And I started trapping, and then uh, I bring my fur up to this facility, which at the time was Ontario Trapper Association. Uh, I graduated high school. I went to Sir Sanford Fleming, took fish, wildlife, and forestry. Graduated that. Worked for the Ministry of Natural Resources for enforcement a few years, but I kept kept trapping, kept a hand on the pulse. And uh, I guess a year or two after I graduated from Sir Sanford Plumbing, I got a call from the management team at this time and, and offered me a job here. And I've been here ever since. What did you start at? When I started, at, I started working in basically in the drum. Oh, okay. You, were, you weren't but still flipping beaver? <laughs> I kind of missed a bit because what happens is just after high school, I got a job here in the winter. Uh, for one winter and I was I was I was drumming for then I took it then I and I left and I went back to, I went to college for three years then when I graduated I, I came back in the summers in the summers I'd work as a as a park warden for the ministry and then in the winters I'd, I'd work here I did that for probably four years I didn't want to give up my ministry job and then I well, guess the, pe the pension and the retirement and all that yeah <laughs> so then I was offered a full-time job and it's uh I've been here ever since so the OT, I'm go sorry. Ahead, I was here when uh, in 1991, January 4th, the Toronto Dominion Bank uh, put OTA in receivership. And uh, myself and a, and a group of others formed a steering committee. We had a meeting at the City Hall in North Bay. And uh, of course, like the, the business was a huge loss to the city because, well, North Bay was, the, the OTA, North Bay First Sales, was one of the leading companies. And uh, anyway, the mayor held a meeting. Our MP was there too. They, they kind of joint chaired it. And out of that came a steering committee of eight, eight trappers, myself and seven other guys. And three, three weeks later, we incorporated this company and Fur Harvesters Oxen. I was in, we got the incorporation papers three months to the day of, of the bank putting us under. So, and the rest is history. We've been going, going strong ever since. Oh, I, let's dig that up just a little bit. I had never realized that. So the OTA started. OTA was founded in 1947 by a group of trappers from Northern Ontario because they wanted to count. They, they were, in those days, there wasn't any auctions. It was like you bring your fur in, the fur buyer, or the Hudson's Bay at the time, and they, they'd offer you a price. You didn't like it, well, take the home and eat it. Right. As, uh, that, that was, so they, they wanted some competition, so they formed what was called the Ontario Trapper Association. It was just a group of guys. One guy was actually Ralph Weiss. Who was an old old friend of mine? He actually received the Order of Canada as a trapper. Wow! And he's long since died, but he was he was one of the original presidents that formed this place. 
So the last big drop in the market was it was throughout the late 80s, 88, 89, 90. And then January 4th, 1991 is when uh, the Toronto Dominion Bank came in and put us in receivership. March 4th, we got the incorporation papers for Fur Harvest's auction and we started all over again. There's new names. Okay. Same building, so same building, same everything, except it's got a new name. It's owned by the Trappers. And what we did is we put out, we set up 50-50 ownership between 50% native, 50% non-native. We got a board of directors of 10, five native, five non-native. Chairmanship splits between the two parties every second year. It'll be a native for two years, a non-native for two years, chairing the board. No kidding. This is what I love about doing this is I learned all this stuff that I had no clue about. <laughs> well, that's, that's the history, but you know, up until then, until now, a lot of water's gone under the bridge. You know, uh, I took over as uh, what happened in 91. We hired a guy named Fred Glover, great guy, passed away a few years ago, but he was a big mentor of mine and a great auctioneer, good fur man, but we hired him away from uh, Seattle Fur Exchange, American legend in Seattle at the time to come and run our place. He, he, he ran the operation as CEO from 91 till 2000. And, uh, you know, he had some health complications, you know, around that time. And I took over in, in 2001, but it was like my introduction was, I think I was, I was sitting at my, at the, the chairs, the chief's desk for like three days when the, the planes crashed into the towers in in New York. So that wow. was kind of started with that. Then two years later was SARS. The SARS yeah. epidemic. We had to have the auction in, uh, we held an auction and we took over the cruise ship terminal in Vancouver. We had an auction there because um, people couldn't come to like Toronto was a hotspot. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's been a, but a lot of things that have happened. We've seen the market go through terrible times and, and we always rebounded on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, as sure as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, I mean, you know, everything goes in cycles, right? Yeah. And, it will. And, and, and it's true, like it, 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 with North American uh, under bankruptcy protection it did leave a big void. There's no doubt about it, uh, especially for the ranch mink people. They, they sold a lot of ranch mink to that operation. And uh, but we, we knew there'd be a lot of activity like the, the buyers, all the buyers that were buying in Alberta. We all know each other. Right. There's no question about that. We all know each other. And certain items were started out really hot this year because they ended up hot last year. But really, nobody's really had a physical auction like a real live auction yet this season and seasons we're getting almost summertime here now yeah i know that that's a difficult part it seemed and i mean the speculation was was you know when they're paying you know a buck 35 and that kind of stuff cash on the barrel head for for good coyotes here in alberta that they were expecting them to run upwards of, of you know 175 200 at the auction they probably would have if, if things had stayed that stayed the course about Without uh, Canada Goose making the announcement with, with this COVID thing coming on, buyers can't come. Like our whole, basically our flagship statement is fur harvesters auction North Bay where the world comes to buy wild fur. Well, the world can't come to North Bay no. to buy wild fur when the world's shut down. So it's like, you know, you, you do your best, but an online auction, if, if you got no, we have no problem selling uh, commercial goods at a set price because first of all, they kind of know the grade. But when it comes to fancy stuff like fancy coyotes, the Italians want to see it, put their hands on it, and right. appraise it. Same as fancy cats. Like we got a good name for cats. Like we sell all kinds of bobcats north of seven hundred dollars to twelve hundred dollars. Well, we're not going to sell any of those. No. On the internet. No. Just because I say so, or anybody else says they're nice, they want to see it. 
No matter how great our grade is, they want to physically see them. And we knew going into this that was going to be the, uh, the issue. But we had to have an auction. We had to form this online auction. Had to try. Had to try. Yeah. What do you think about, you, you mentioned the, the Canada Goose, uh, their, their new statement. What's, what, what do you think was going on there? I don't know. Like they're, I, I would think they probably, they're going to be, they say they're going to recycle everything going into 2022. I don't, I don't see, I don't really know how that's going to work. Where's it going to come from? I don't, I don't know. You know, that's that's the first thing I look at. You know, we we're in the in the middle of the world now, where you know we can burn used tires and and creosote timbers up from from the railroad tracks and all that, and that's all biomass generation, right? And it all starts out as a great thing because you've been looking at the pile of used tires that you wish somebody would get rid of, but they build a plant and they burn up those used tires in in, in a month or a year or whatever, and then they got to start burning other stuff and other stuff and other stuff. Pretty soon it becomes a supply problem. The whole thing about saying that you're going to reuse, recycle fur. Great. Where's it going to come from? That's that's my issue. Is is where exactly is it going to come from? Well, if they're going to like they're a, they're a strong company, they must have done their research. They must have some kind of game plan. But I I I can't really speak on it. Uh, I know that there'll be other people stepping up, like the, the fancy top end coyotes, the ones that everybody wants to get two hundred dollars, hundred seventy five dollars for. They're they're being bought by the by a few really top end manufacturers out of Italy. Out of Italy. And, out of Italy. And and I talk to these these fellas all the time. They're friends of mine and they're in they're in lockdown. Like they're they're in lockdown way worse than uh what we're going through. They can't leave their house at all. So you know in order for them to keep their factories running, they have to leave their house. Their factories are shut right down. Yeah. So it's this thing is is having a really deep impact when it comes to the to the top people that are buying the fur out of Italy because all the a lot of those big companies in Italy are in the northern part of Italy that's where the the uh, viruses really took a strong hold right yeah. in there yeah. South, it's not so bad so what market do they serve uh like in Italy like, I mean you don't even think when we talk about fur and and countries that use fur or, or buy fur and you know China Russia that kind of stuff but what does Italy you know what market do they serve with, with that well you you mentioned Russia, a lot of the, the top designers, their end product from Italy goes ends up in Russia. Oh, so, like those fancy cats that people are, you know, always saying, you know, I wish I had a bobcat worth a thousand dollars. Well, that's kind of like a Montana, Wyoming, Nevada. You know, the high altitude type yeah. cat from, from uh, the, the U.S. But as well, Alberta gets some nice ones too, and so does, so does BC, but not a lot. It's the Italians that are buying that, the majority of them. Some of them are bought by the Greeks, but the majority of those coats, when they're finished, end up in Russia. Oh, Good. okay. As, as well as, as, the, as the fancy, uh, really high-end uh, parkas with, with the coyote collars, bought by these Italian people. They, they end up, a lot of that goes, goes into Russia as, as well. So, and, and then on the other end, there's, there's a lot of Chinese companies that are, that are stepping in. We sold a lot of coyotes into China. Yeah. But it's it's kind of like eighty dollars down, eighty US down. Right. But still, eighty eighty dollars US. It's still it's, it's still pretty good money. I remember it wasn't that many years ago when you you couldn't sell the best coyote for eighty dollars Canadian. It wasn't that long ago. No. So you know what, what goes up will come down, and and this 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 market it's it's 
you know, it has its peaks and valleys and it, it'll, it'll come back. It, it's going down a bit, but it'll come back again. That way people fill in the void from Canada Goose if they do decide to actually get out of it. But that remains to be seen. They could revisit. I'm sure they could revisit this thing too, I don't. Yes, well, I, I kind of think it was just a way of, of, of getting Peter off their back for two years. <laughs> That's what I think because I, yeah, I you're just, probably you're probably right. Yeah. Kind of like a soft exit and for, for give them peace and quiet for a couple of years, then they'll revisit it. Yeah, it's, that's what I thought. But you said something that's pretty interesting. I didn't know that there were higher end um, parkas out there using coyote that higher than, than, than Canada Goose. Yeah, there, there's quite a few companies that buy, that sell very, very expensive garments with coyote trim on them. Really? Huh. There's so much of that that, that we never understand, right? I remember seeing some of the, the the videos from guys that have been over to China and they walk down a, the street and and there's a, a mall and it has you know I forget how many stores in it 120 stores or whatever and and they all sell fur you know and they look like one one to the other is the same thing you know a couple coats in there some fur fur hanging you know on on the the racks that kind of stuff but it's just amazing for that many people you know you see that's the other thing people have to understand like the, the whole coyote thing, the fur business in general, you just, just take parkas with coyote collars, for instance. You go down in New York, Saks Fifth Avenue, Macy's, all these stores, are, they're shut down. Yeah. There, there's, no retail, there's no retail sales. So it, it's, uh, it's not a leap to think that there's a reason why there's a glitch in, in, the, in the coyote market in particular, along, along with other things. Uh, certain things we're still selling but it's going into like mainland china and some north american stronghold markets beaver and uh heavy raccoon and stuff like that we actually sold but everybody knows our grade where it comes to like fancy coyotes fancy cats it's you know the buyer wants to put his hands on that before he takes position and it's big money well and not only that but at this point your reputation is the only reason that you sell anything when you're doing it online and your reputation as, as being, you know, fair and honest graders, like that, that, that sort of thing, you know, they're, they're take, don't have, don't feel as bad about taking a chance as, as they would if, if, you know, your guys were hit and miss all over the place. Right. Exactly. And we've, we've always for years, like stood ever since I was a, started working here as a young guy, it was like, we stood behind our grade and, uh, we always we've always stood behind our grade and and at the end of the day that's that's what you got it's, it's your word and, and your uh the way your collection everybody's got to make money through the whole chain i'd like nothing to sell everybody's coyotes for a thousand dollars but the dressing plant's got to make money dressing them uh the auction house has to make money selling them and the manufacturer has to make money selling the guy at the end of the day the, the real onus is on the person that's that bought the coat to sell resell in the store so the whole supply chain has to make has to make money, and this this virus has really thrown a monkey wrench into the whole whole program. Like even the dressing plants now, they're they're hurting for business because there's no flow of merchandise. Oh, I know. I've keep the people dressed. I've got a bunch of uh, lynx and, and otter and that that I want to send to to get to, uh, tanned as well, right? For yeah. projects that I've got, there isn't even anybody in the government office that will that, that I can get my permit from. You know, because here in Alberta, we have to have an export permit. And, and right. so I, they're, they're all shut down. The, the government offices are shut down. I can't even get that permit, you know. We're, we go through the same thing here. Like our permits, we're shipping goods. Like every, every day we're shipping contain, we're goods out of here. Like from the last auction, 
receivables are coming in really, really well to stuff and soul. Money's coming in quick, which is a sign of a good business and, and we're chipping it out. But stuff like CITES, we can't get CITES permits until the ministry gets back in the, in the office. Yeah. Export permits we can do on our own, it's no problem. We, we have the authority to do that. But the CITES permit, we have to get uh, higher up in the, in the Canadian Wildlife Service issue. I know that uh, one time uh, Sandy shot a cougar down in, in Idaho and we had to go through a CITES process and all that for that. It took 11 months. Is you you guys must have a, a much better uh, timeline than that? Well, yeah, we well we for years we had a, a, a provincial fur marketing specialist, a, a game warden that had an office right here, permanent. Uh, for the last five years, they haven't. But we have a direct line with with the ministry, and, and we we can normally get a CITES permit. Call today, we'll have it tomorrow. Really? The fact, yeah, no problem. I've done that in some third world countries and it involved in a hundred dollar bill, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you in order to get a trophy home. But <laughs> I didn't know that our government could be quite that efficient. <laughs> no, we, we got a really good relationship, long history with the miniature natural resources here. And they actually played a big role back in the forties and fifties, starting it up because every sale game wardens were, were seconded here. Back in the 50s and 60s, they would work. Every game warden in the province had worked here for a period of time, like sorting furs, as borders for the buyers. So okay. we had a long history with Heminar, yeah. Well, that's cool, though. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing you like better than somebody in that situation to actually know what they're talking about, you know, which is something we're, we're, we're losing in, in so many facets of, of society, right? Yeah, I spoke earlier about the, the stamping of the fur, the sealing of the fur. Like, I know Alberta has, like, metal seals, right? Yes. Where you used to have? Okay. Yep. Well, we did it one time, too. We had beaver seals. This is before before my time. Then it went to, like, an ink stamp with a, with a crown insignia on it, and everything had to be stamped. So last receiving day, as it applied to fur at fur harvester's auction, uh, the most travelers within, say, 150 kilometers will drive to North Bay, and if last receiving days was was uh, February 10th and 11th, those those two days our warehouse was full of trappers lined up with fur over their back, and there'd be two or three game wardens here stamping the fur. In the late late 90s, the ministries, through their wisdom, decided to streamline that and get rid of the stamping and the sealing of fur, and they made on our license, which is called was an it was called an annual uh, kind of like a summary report. You'd have to write down like a summary report, the date, of the end of the season, how many animals you had, how many shipped auction. Well, anyway, when they got rid of this, when they got rid of that hands-on sealing, we lost the Trappers of Ontario lost their touch with with the, with the with the conservation officers and vice versa. That connection was was really really important, and uh, because you know it, it showed to the to the public. We do a lot of tours here with kids coming in, and in those years we'd say you know all this fur. They'd say what's that stamp? I said that's stamped by a game warden. We can't sell fur unless it's been physically stamped by a conservation officer. Like it, it showed a lot of credibility in the regulations and how it was strictly enforced. So it, it's still strictly enforced through the, you know, the 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 permits we got to fill out the, the annual summary, and then it's all tied to what's called firmus, because we're still one of the last outfits. Ontario trappers are still paying taxes. We still pay royalty <laughs> taxes, and uh, where every other province is getting rid of it, we're still getting dinged. Hey, Rich here. Sandy and I are pleased to announce the launch of our exclusive community, Trapping Inc. Nation. We've created the community to connect more closely with our fans, friends, and supporters without the interference and censorship of social media companies. 
By making this community subscriber exclusive, we can share thoughts and ideas freely without the censored photos, shadow banning, and deplatforming of Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Trolls will be a thing of the past, as not one will spend a nickel to protest on a paid site. Here you're going to get to see the new Trapping Inc. videos months ahead of YouTube and Amazon Prime availability. New podcast will premiere here for a week as well, and we are going to be sharing articles on trapping and guns and shooting, as well as our new TV series, Married to the Hunt. The forum is here for everyone to post on and interact. You can message us directly. Post and interact with all the other subscribers. We ask that you be respectful and helpful. This whole venture is about taking the Trapping Inc. TV community to the next level, of building a community of shared interest and interacting with you, our fans. Who knows where we can go from here? To sign up, just go to locals.com and sign up for a free account, then search for Trapping Inc. and subscribe. $3 per month is the minimum fee we can charge, and that is where we have set it. That simple, just go to locals.com, open a free account, and then subscribe to Trapping Inc. Help us spread the truth about our way of life and the responsible and ethical management of the wild resources. And now back to today's show. To get back to what you said, though, about uh, the loss that was involved when the Fish and Wildlife officers were no longer there stamping in that, yeah. you, the, the connection you lost. And, and whoever did it, probably it started out as, as a, you know, like a cost-cutting thing, right? Because, 100%. you know, there would have been a Saturday or a Sunday sometime when they had to be there and they'd be get paid overtime, that kind of stuff. But the, the, the loss, the value of, of, um, of loss for the community and, and the cooperation between the trappers and, and the conservation officers was, was a lot bigger than something you could weigh in, in dollars. And you, you talked to a lot of those conservation officers that most of my are getting near retired or have retired during that year that took place. And they would tell you the exact same thing. They were against it because like nobody has their hand on the pulse of, of a particular chunk of land than the trapper himself. Like he knows what's going on there. And uh, he knows who's, who's netting fish, who's jacking deer. Like he's, he's yep. all that, that, connection there was, was gone forever it was just just uh, the whole camaraderie like getting to know your conservation officer but they the the game wards would, would, would tell you that you know the, the trappers were a solid source of like what was actually happening in a particular registered trap line area zone you know if, if a new game ward would come into town lots of time he'd come into the office and he'd say you know who's who traps such and such township behind lake nipson or whatever and you know to go out and spend a day with the local trapper, that knowledge, it's, it's, you, you can't buy that. You know, you got Google Earth and all this kind of stuff now, but it's not the same than getting on a snowmobile and following the trapper around on that piece of ground. Well, they, they have no idea, and but they, they quickly learn. It's funny because we've got new kids that have have started up as, as uh, game wardens or conservation officers here in Alberta. We've quickly become a popular place for them to come to. You know, like uh, they, they, they come and they do, do a day with us and, Sandy feeds them. I gotta maybe I gotta stop her from feeding them. Maybe that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe I need to do that. But you know, the, then the next new guy comes. The next week. now now some of them are coming back for their third and fourth time for a day out of the trap line with me. Right. I I think for one thing, anything that we can do to to show people what trapping actually is. I mean, that's part of what we do with the TV show and and, and the podcast and all that is just just to show what trapping actually is and and. Uh, the, the connection that's made there, I, I, I think that opens a lot more doors than, than it closes, you know? I would say, honestly, like a big pat on the back for you and your wife, like what you've done with your, with your show in the last few years, 
probably been the largest impact, positive impact, of our trade that's 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 happened in, in a long, long time. As it's done real professionally, and it's like it's it's the real deal. Anybody that's trapper knows that you're the real deal. It's not some stage thing where you're saying my beaver's five hundred dollars. Like it's like you're uh, you're calling a spade a spade. <laughs> And uh, it, it puts a reality to the whole thing, the whole family aspect. Anybody that's not a trapper that just hates the idea of it, you're not going to change their mind. But the large percentage of the population that doesn't know what we do, they don't, they don't have an understanding. That's right. And if you, you're doing a great job, you and your wife is showing what actually takes place, then they, they, they form an opinion based on facts. They might not necessarily want to be a trapper, but they understand the importance of why there has to be trapping. Yeah, that, and that's part of it. And the other part of it is, is we're just plain, normal, regular, boring people. You know, we 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 wear clothes all the time and, and that kind of stuff. You know, it's it's not like what some of the 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 images that are out there. You know, in, as far as as trappers or whatever, we're just normal, regular people. She's a very professional person. You know, a, a very high level banker, and and th those kind of things clash with people's uh, opinion of of what trappers should be, right? Um, I, I think that uh, you know we have to be careful of of uh, how we we represent uh, what we do and everybody not just not just those of us you know that have have a privileged place in the media but but everybody has to be careful of, of how we're representing trapping because it Absolutely. it is a big battle it is a big battle and we got we got to keep got to keep fighting and got to keep uh, the, the truth getting out there I know that we have had so many emails and texts and everything else where people say um you know i never trapped before or or i used to trap as a kid but you've you've encouraged me to get back into it and I, that's a good thing to see that's a good thing to see i know that there's a lot of trappers that, that are mad about that because that, that just means more more competition but we can't be a closed community <laughs> you know no re recruitment is a big part of the of the problem we're facing like we we need recruitment with young trappers you know, yep. I've, I've been a provincial trapper instructor for 25 years and I don't do courts like I used to, but I always used to always try and do two a year. I haven't done one for a few years now, but it's, it's really, it's really important because without recruitment, like there's no, there's no future for our business. I, oh, exactly. Exactly. And we need to have that, that future, you know, you know, that, um, I don't, I don't know if you know this number, you probably do know better than I do, but on average, Alberta, uh, sells 40,000 coyotes a year. You know, on average, that's what we ship out of here. The the year that the trappers don't do that for free, it's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars to, to yeah. take care of that problem. You know, that's that's just part of the of the reality of it all, right? And the same thing can be say. I can tell you, like Ontario annually harvested north of a hundred thousand beavers a year. Yeah, take that away, like you start looking at. You know, road damage, crops flooding, highways out, train train issues. Like it for the taxpayer, it's, it's huge. It, absolutely, around here, like the oil companies all just look at you, and, and if they got a, a a single beaver in a in a beaver dam, you know that that's damming a culvert on road, that's a thousand dollar beaver because that's what it costs just for one day to clean that culvert. You know, by the time they 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 they, they load up the the excavator, ship it out there, and push a log through and come back and all that. That's a thousand dollars. And by the time they get back out there the next morning, the beaver will have it plugged again. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it, 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 it's an important thing. You talked about the different jobs that you've done there. Uh, you were, were not an auctioneer. 
when you no, started? No, I start out. No, I, no, I start, like I say, I started out my first, my first winter here part time was just drumming fur. Then, you know, when that was done, I like stuff muskrats in bags or count muskrats or count raccoon or size beaver. So I did that, like I say, for three or three or four winters once I came back from Sir Sanford Fleming or went to college. And then uh, probably my fourth year, I started grading, learned to grade beaver and also always working on the auction stand though. Uh, at the time, during when I started, there was a fella originally from, uh, he worked for Dominion Sudak. His name was Alec Chief. And they hired him in, I think it was 60, 62 or 63, right on the year I was born. They, <laughs> they, they hired him away from the Warner family who owned Dominion Sudak in uh, Winnipeg. And that's when the Trappers Ontario started the Ontario Trappers and Chief. They hired Alec Chief to come and set it up as the boss. And uh, he's, he's the fellow that ended up hiring me back in the mid 80s, right after I was done college. And right off the bat, he always, he always had me on the auction stand. And I was one of the younger ones. I wasn't an auctioneer, but you know, there's the auctioneer in the middle and then there's a spotter on the left and the right. Yep. So it's very difficult. If you only have like 20 people in the room, an auctioneer can do the job, you know, easily. But if you have like 150, 200 people, 300 people in the room, all jumping up and down in a hot market with hands flying, you're going to miss bids. So the auctioneer kind of takes the bids, bids up the center and does his best to scan left and right, but he's focusing on the center. And anybody that's in the wings on the right that puts their hand up, the spotter yells up. So if I'm looking at you and you've got your hand up and I take you at $100, and I go hundred dollars, all done hundred dollars. I'm a right yells up. I go hundred, hundred and five. Then left, this guy yells up. So hundred, five, hundred, ten, fifteen, twenty. So the spotters are the ones that look after the are the wings in the auction, making sure no bids are lost. Right. So when I was working the auction stand as as a young guy, I was working as a spotter. I did that for three or four years. Uh, there was a guy named Bobby Wright who was a Second World War veteran, Black Watch. Scottish guy, tough as tough as hell. He was, <laughs> the he, was from the, hell. Uh, he was he was the fur marketing uh, the head the head fur marketing guy here at the time. He'd been in his late sixties. Anyway, he was auctioneering. He was a great auctioneer. Uh, he had a, like a, a sore throat one day, and this was like started off in the morning, probably around ten o'clock. He just grabs me, puts me in. He goes, "New auctioneer," and he, he went off to to the side. And I, <laughs> yeah, that's how that's how I got my. Uh, my initiation, I didn't have time to go to the bathroom to get sick or anything. I was <laughs> but at the, at the end of the day, I was, uh, I was wild mink at the time. And wild mink was selling like 60, 70, $80. It was crazy. This would be around, you know, the, the, I'd say 86, 87, somewhere in there. So anyway, when it was all done, the entire auction room, a lot of old fellas all stood up and, you know, gave you a big, big standing ovation. So oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. It was it was it was really cool. So when it was all done, Bobby took me by the, you know, around the back. So how'd that go? Yeah, I said, Well, I wish you had to give me kind of a softer introduction that just dropped me. And he goes, Listen, it's better. It's like teaching a kid how to swim. Drop him off the end of the dock. And, and that's, <laughs> kind of, that's kind of the way it started, right? So it's, I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> Drop him off the end of the dock, and if he's there for lunch, well, he, he learned how to yeah. swim. <laughs> Yeah, so it was kind of that old school, tough type uh, environment that, you know, that kind of put, put not just myself, but a lot of the people that are that started out here young that we, we were taught by guys like that. Guys with strong character. And you, said, you said he was Scottish. Scottish. 
So he was the, the like the ultimate auctioneer then because nobody had a clue what he was saying, right? <laughs> he, he was he was probably the best auctioneer we had. Yeah. Uh, oh, he was great. Yeah, Bobby was a great, great guy. Oh, I I know. Like uh, on uh, my my wife's side of the family, they're they're Scottish, and and I love the accent. Like I mean, that is that is so cool. But then, as I get older and my hearing gets worse, and that the accents aren't aren't my friend anymore. <laughs> So when did the, the uh, or was it always part of it, like you, your store, your uh, online store uh, started out as a catalog store? Or was that from OTA as well? Oh, OTA had the, the trap department, yes. It's all, it was always there. Okay. And how, how does that, is it going good for you now, or is, is it like shipping killing you like everybody else? No, no. The business hasn't dropped off at all. Like the store manager we we laid we laid him off for like two weeks mm -hmm. and we just had the mess anyway the call shifts kept coming in we got clearance from like we were okay because we had we formed this on, online auction so therefore under the rules of this coronavirus we could maintain a staff here as long as an online auction to deal with the online auction and answer the phone and take orders and ship goods so once we got the approval to see where this was all going we brought we brought kenny frederick back and he's been running ever since. So what he does, he takes phone orders all day long and online orders. And at the end of the day, he puts them on a couple of big skids, puts them up open at the end of the loading dock. And there's a buzzer, says ring the buzzer, he opens the door and the post office picks it up with the truck and away they go. So with nothing, and it's, business has been just as regular as always. And it, there's no reason why trappers can't still be trapping. Like how much more isolated can you get? That's why oh, we became trapped. We like our own company. Oh, it's funny because I'm I'm going to be doing a podcast here very shortly with our minister of Hertz Environment and Parks is Alberta Environment and Parks, but he's our Fish and Wildlife, our, our Sustainable Resources. That and it was funny when they announced that they were shutting down a bunch of the, of the the bush because it, it was dry as we're coming out of you know with as as quick as the snow melts, you know, then things can get dry and you can have fire yeah. before things green up. And he, he, uh, he got a hold of me before the announcement went out. He says, oh, we're shutting down the bush for, for people just quadding that. But he says, that doesn't mean that that's not you guys, not you trappers. So <laughs> right on. We've, we've, we've been on a fire ban since March. Yeah. Well, they did that here, but you know, at the time it was, they, they had to walk it back. They, they did it and then they had to walk it back. And, and now they're slowly trickling in different counties and, and uh, management units that are, are trickling back in and, and bringing a fire watch on. I understand why when they first did it, it, it blanketed the, the entire province. And, and I had just literally finished using my skid steer to dig out my fire pit, you know, and I had, I had snow banks that were, were five, six feet tall all the way around my fire pit. It was like, uh, I had to mock them at that point. You can't let that one go by, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they, they walked it back and, and, and they, they discussed it with, with the people and said, you know, this is how we're going to do it. They, you know, there were a lot more transparency. People, when people understand, you know, and the reason why that, you know, the fire could be so bad because, because of this, this virus and all that kind of stuff, they're, they're a lot more uh, forgiving, right? They, they, they'll cooperate better, right? Yeah. One of the big things, uh, oh, I just wanted to say about, um, when you're talking about phone orders, what, what's, what's the majority, uh, online or like internet or, or phone? What's the most still? Probably still phone. Still phone, huh? Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're working. We're working on the, you know, we're we're definitely ramping up the online thing, but it's still a lot. Most of the trappers they like to they like to talk to the guy on the phone, put in the yeah. order. I can imagine, and and they, and especially if they know them, well, then nobody gets any work done for about an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you got it yeah for me once once again whether uh, i'm dealing with with, with folks where there, where there are accents or whatever i love the internet because then it's easy to understand what i'm saying and what they're saying and and uh and the orders and that but I, I was pretty sure that with, with the trappers the phone was still the big thing let's talk about probably the biggest discussed thing and that's fur grading and i would dearly love to come and do some videos with you guys uh you know this is a raccoon this is a good one this is a bad one what are we looking for because there is there's probably more rumors and innuendo out there than there is about area 51 you know what i mean or been that way forever i know (laughs) (laughs) how many fur graders do you have do do they specialize like yeah they specialize one guy does we, we have a lot of our fur graders are like look like nine month contracts and there are they we get them benefits all year round but they work basically nine months because there's nothing going on here in the summer so you know so you'll have they've been they've been coming here for years and, and quite a few of them are like their contracts to build homes in the summer or, or whatever right but then come come november they're back here full pin grading fur so yeah, we have ones that specialize, but our our senior people they're very very versatile. They can do multi species, and a couple of them do that can do all of them. So it just comes from you know over over the years, it's it's nothing you go to school for. You're just you're you get you get one of the senior guys, and you get under as being like a, a junior tech, and you just work with them and break the goods down. Then he comes back a day or two later, goes through them all, and slowly slowly that's how you build up the confidence and understand the whole whole line as they say like you know there's a line to follow like you know when the fur comes in we issue a receipt and then the then the trapper gets his receipt and then it just disappears it doesn't know where it goes well you know the if it's a long-haired species goes to the drum but if it's a the beaver goes to the beaver department the fox goes to the fox department the martin goes to the martin department once it gets there it's sized it's graded for quality and then it's graded for color and then lotted like that and then once the lots are all done the grader will come through and then pick a sample sample represents like for instance say beaver you could you could have like 500 double extra large heavy extra dark a colored beavers well you don't the buyer's not going to look through 500 so we do is we pull a, a sample just random 10 off, off the pile and that represents whatever's in the cooler we break them down in piles 50 50 50 50 so like triple X large big blankets, we put them in, in bales of 50. Whereas smalls, we put them in bales of 150 just because of the size. But right. the, 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 so we'll have like, say we'd have 10, we'd have 10 lots of 50, and the last is, is 10. That's the sample that represents everything ahead of it in those big bundles. So I'd love to have you come here. You and Sandy, welcome to come anytime. Like, I, we have a big convention here, which is, we're, we're well known for the convention. There's times we have up to 3,000 trappers coming to converge on North Bay. And uh, we everything goes on from skinning competitions and uh, first fashion shows and councils from all over, all over Canada and, and North America. We bring booths up and displays and things like that. A lot of seminars and demonstrations. So I'd love to have you two come to that as well. But anytime you want to come and spend some time going work, work with some graders, 
and doing some video. It'd be our pleasure to have you. We will take you up on that. It's going to happen, especially when, I mean, I usually this time of the year, I'm, I'm, I'm busy editing and, and, and I'm chained inside the, my office as it is, but just this year because I am chained and chained, it's like, boy, do I really want to go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Just because I want to. <laughs> you, can, can we talk about, you talked about the stages, you know, that the, the, the fur is received and then it, then it's graded. Now, the grading, of, is that got to do with prime or with, is that when they, they, they get the heavy or the fall grading? Uh, explain that a little bit more. Because you, well, you guys have abbreviations that nobody knows what the hell they mean. <laughs> Yeah, and we we do have kind of like a, a write-up that describes those uh, descriptions, like ET and uh, like ones and twos, ones and twos heavies, like that. That's we do have reference to that in in our order of sale as well as the, the results you'll get. But uh, a lot a lot is determined. You can tell a lot by you know, when a when a trapper comes in and puts his fur on the table to be received. You can tell a lot just by looking at the leather. Okay. You know, especially stuff like raccoons, otters, wild mink, beaver. Like, you know, when a guy comes in, all the all the leather slaty look. You know, like he 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 was either starting right on the day of this uh, the season or <laughs> the night before. But anyway, you can tell a lot by the color of the leather. Right. And so that that's kind of your first indicator. You you don't you won't you very rarely you're going to get a like a real prime heavy beaver that's got leather as black as your boot. So. Yeah. That's that's the first indicator, and but once the leather once the leather starts whitening up, that's that's a sign right there that you're dealing with like prime prime pelt. Yeah. So a lot of the beaver, for instance, that would come in here, the leather's kind of slaty, and okay, well that's like October, November. Then you then it starts to get kind of creamy white. Well, now your majority of these beavers are coming either just as the lake's freezing up, or that it's coming from under the guys are trapping under the ice. Those are the beavers that are. Are going to bring the, the, big, the big money, and the same thing can be said for fish or any of your long-haired fur. To you, you flip up the tail and look in the window, and if it's got white leather, that's an indicator that you're dealing with a pretty fine animal. Except unless you know you're going to get things like mange and ticks and scars and uh, that shoulder mite and stuff like that. You get on coyotes that you can get that 24/7 around the year. Right, right. You talked about. Um... One of the things that I, I was curious about when it comes to beaver, like, I mean, of course, our beaver in the in the West are not worth what your beaver are in the East because of the color usually, right? Because yeah, but we, we, we've been grading a lot of them right in the thars too, like an ordinary color because like this last auction, you know, we've always done pretty good on, on the, like, in the world of selling beaver here in North Bay. And, and a lot of the beaver we get from Alberta, we're putting it right in with, with the ordinary color because they're dying them anyway. Well, Aren't most of them going for shearing? Yeah, exactly. But a lot of them are being dyed, so they pluck they, they pluck the hair, shear it, yeah. and then they, they dye them. They can dye them like green, blue, black. Well, it doesn't really matter what color the garter is because the underfurs going to be dyed black or green or some color. Yeah, yeah, or or for making hats. But yeah, um, I was because I was always curious about that. Why why would there be a western and an eastern? Especially if that's what it's going for. But I guess you have to you have to let them know you know what, what where the source is or whatever. Why is Western Select Castor worth more? Western Castorium has always been. It's it's first of all they're they're they're, they're usually normally they're a lot larger. Is that and a fact? Like, yeah, and they're uh, yeah, and 
also the color it's it's they're more they're they're more of like a school bus color like a, a dark dark orange whereas like our beavers it would the castroid still sells no problem but it's kind of like a darker more of a brown color, brown to beige color, whereas Western Castorium is is like a really dark orange color, almost like a like a school bus. Right. And so I, what we did is we we said we you know we're going to try and market these things differently this year. That's that's what we did. We tried to get a we didn't do it with the with the, with the like there's a one there's a two and a three. A one is like sack is full full full. Yeah. Two it's like there's a lot of content, but it's not it's not bursting like a like a water balloon. And the three is like a shell. It's just kind of like hollow, but there's still some, some stuff in it. So what we did is with the ones, we said we're going to make a premium grade just the westerns, and we're going to we're going to put a premium on it for 110 bucks U.S. That's what we sold them for. We sold out. Yeah, it's amazing. I I just did a um, uh, a video that we're we're putting up on our community, and we went out beaver shooting, and I I skinned some of them up, like right on the video, and and uh, I pulled the, the caster out of three of them. And I showed them, you know, even, even the fact that it wasn't the size, it was how full they were. And I, I graded all three of my, uh, all three of them at, at number two. Maybe I did, maybe I did okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what does Castorium get used for? Well, it, it's, we, we have people coming from all over the world to buy it. So it's, it's being sold to a lot into Pakistan. What they use it for, I don't know. They can oh, use it for in, incense, food byproducts. They're not telling me. Oh, I, I better. <laughs> like, I don't want to ask them. I said, like, <laughs> money, there's your goods. Like, there's your export permit. Uh, but we do sell it into Europe to a lot of uh, people that we know for sure that top end perfume base. Right. Yeah. I, I kind of thought that, and I heard that there was some food flavorings uh... it does go in like food byproduct like it, it does go in stuff like that that as well but what percentage i like of our sales goes there i couldn't tell you for sure but i know we do sell we do we do sell a lot of it to the to the top end perfume manufacturers and demand for it's gone up right the demand's gone up for sure but also like the production of beaver's gone down so that, yeah. that's the other thing right yeah so yeah. And it's like any, it's like any, like the beaver production now is at an all time. It's, it's the lowest it's ever been since I've been in this business. Well, you were saying that you would bring in a hundred thousand beaver out of Ontario alone. And, and now I think Ontario's production now, I bet you would be, we'd be lucky to be hitting 30,000, I bet you. So you guys have a system there, a quota system on beaver. If you have a registered trap line, you have to take a minimum quota, right? Or a minimum percentage of that quota? Right. Like uh, I've had the same trap line for 31 years now on the West Arm of Lake Nipissing. And my annual beaver quota was forever 225. And I'd have, I have to catch 75% of the quota or run the risk of being fined and could even lose my trap line. Really? Yeah. Since then I've got that quota dropped to like 125. Yeah. Uh, because uh, partly because just it's it's the price hasn't been there, but also like the the beaver's not as as it was. There's there, I could still probably harvest that amount, but you know everybody's you know it, it's expensive to get out there and trap that level. Right? Two hundred twenty five beaver, so I, I I had to drop down well, seven years ago. I talked to the industry and I asked them to drop. Down. So and plus at one time before I was the CEO here, I was I was running two trap lines, but. 
now I just run the one, and even that it's hard. Yeah. Uh, one is certain species they assign you a quota. In the old days, they'd fly your trap line and they'd do a physical house count. So if you had a hundred, then they'd they depending on the territory. If you if you had a really rich uh, ground that had a lot of poplar and aspen, they'd probably give you like three beaver per house. But they fly it over, and your house count is a hundred on your on your trap line. Your quota is three hundred. But pretty well standard is now is one and a half. So if you got a hundred, my if you fly my line, there's a hundred beaver houses. Your beaver quota is one hundred and fifty. They don't. They haven't done that for years. So it's basically the inventory is done on behalf. Like the trapper does it himself. He goes into the ministry. Say, I got like eighty live houses. Okay, that's your quota. If you want more, you want less. You kind of negotiate with the wildlife management officer. But certain things there is no quota. Uh, otters, uh, wild mink, muskrats, red foxes, coyotes, wolves. Where we do have is on items like lynx. Fisher, Martin, and Beaver. Those in my area, that, that's the quotas that I've got. Okay. And a couple of species where there's no harvest, like there's like Wolverine zero. Right. Uh, first of all, I'm not going to catch any North Bay, but they do catch the odd one in like, you know, Northern Ontario on the James Bay border there and up around there. But there's no quotas given for those species or, or cougars or that kind of stuff. But everything else is what if it's if it's just a blank on your license, it means it's open. So muskrats, it'll say on your harvest report at the end of the year, it'll say muskrat, and beside my it'll say it'll say nothing, so I can catch as many as I want. Beside beaver, it'll say 125. So that's my quota. By law, under the regulation, I have to catch 75%. There's a reason for that. They don't want you to. I can't catch over 100%. But and if I do, like, not like if my quota will say 125, and I catch 130, nothing's going to happen. Just be, your last check, you get a few too many, it happens. But you know, if your quota is 125 and you, and you come in with like 250, well, you're going to pay a price. Oh, okay. So the, the quota's on there for two reasons they don't want to, they don't want to, to over harvest, but the reason why the 75% is because they don't want to under harvest either because of the fallout from diseases like telaremia and, and, damage to the roads and overpopulation, things like that. So that's why that 75% was, was in place that for those two reasons. Tell me a little bit about this red wolf. <laughs> You're probably the closest thing to an expert that, 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 that somebody that it's actually affected by. <laughs> I've, I've been dealing with this a long time because I was always, uh, during the nineties, I was, I was catching, you know, 20, 15, 20, 25 wolves a year. And our wolves aren't like you guys. At one time they were, but I don't remember the last time I caught a really nice black wolf or a real nice gray white wolf. They're all red ears, look like great big giant, bushy German shepherds, what they look like. They're oh, really? like a, the Eastern wolf. They're not, and they're, they're, they're definitely, they're a mongrel, hybrid pick one but there's there's nothing special about them like there there's been biologists say you know we got to protect them they're not wolf well in park it isn't an island like new zealand or australia there's no moat around it there's no fence like animals are free to go in and out of the boundary there like my trap line for years my original trap line was right on the on the boundary of, of Algonquin park where this whole thing started from so we had a biologist at the time his name was um 
John Tiberge. He was doing a study on, he said it was a red wolf. Well, the same thing we've been catching forever. You know, in, East, in Ontario, they called it a brush wolf, a tweed wolf, uh, an eastern wolf. But it was, it was just really what it is. It's a, just a great big giant coyote. Oh, okay. So, like, we call it an eastern coyote. So, if, if a guy came in here, the brightest biologist in the land would bring in 10 of these, what they call a gonquin wolf. And we would receive them as eastern coyotes. They would be graded with these, with the other 10,000 in the pile. And we'd grade them all in there. And I'd bring any biologist in the Dominion of Canada come and pay them a lot of money to pick out what, what that guy threw in there because they're all looking the same, all the same animal. So it's basically we're getting them from New Brunswick, Maine, New York. Like it's against, it's against a lot of harvest wolves in, in New York State. But this animal, what we grade as Eastern Coyote, Red Red Wolf, or whatever you want to call it, that's the, it's the same animal. It's got many names, but it's it's identical. It's the same species we get from the, from from Michigan, uh, Maine, New Hampshire, New York State. We get lots of them. Same as New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Quebec, all kinds of them. Ontario, lots of them. The boundary seems to be kind of like. Uh, the North Highway, once you get to like, once you hit the boreal forest, the, the species doesn't do well there. Then, then you start getting like the nice timber wolves of what we, we, we close our eyes and picture the wolf. Yeah, okay. Then this animal doesn't go much past there. You get the odd say around Timmins or Cochran, but then once you get north, you know, over towards Nipigon, western, western Ontario, northwest Ontario, we, they don't get that type of that animal. So the line seems to be like, getting over towards like once you get past like Sault Ste. Marie uh, south of there that's where, where it is and all the way across eastern Canada that's that's the animal and we grade it as an eastern coyote so they are a product of a coyote and a wolf it, or it, without a doubt there's been a lot of research on it but the thing is is Princeton University did a study on it and they actually used like tissue from the tongue We've had ministry biologists in here for years taking hair follicles, and hair follicles you can get DNA from a hair follicle, yep. but you don't get you don't get the same uh, really strong footprint as you do from actual tissue, the tongue. So Princeton, we sent the, some tissue. There was a bunch of the uh, tongue tissue, and sent to Princeton, and Princeton's data showed that it was. I'll, I'll send you. I got the, some papers on this. I'll send it if you find it interesting. But anyway. The paper showed that it had coyote DNA, wolf DNA, and lots of times, even in there, there'd be a dog genome in there. Really? Yeah. Well, it, it was a real mix. Like there was a lot of there was a lot of coyote and a lot of wolf. It was mixed in there. I understand that they're quite large. Yeah, they're they're large. Like I still get I still get like I'll get if I catch one that's ninety eight pounds. That's not. That's not the animal we're talking about. Okay. The animal we're talking about, like I've caught them, like they'll get to like 70 pounds, 72, 74. One, one, yeah. And that's like, that's that's what we're calling, that's what we're calling Eastern Coyotes. And we sold, they sold really well here. Like we sold, I think the basis was 130 or 140. We sold them all day long here over on the internet. And it's used for the same thing. It's it's not used as a garment, it's just cut into strips to make the parka trim. 
the rough. But the yeah. thing is, is a lot of, there's a lot of square inches there too, right? Because yeah. you know, you take your top western coyote is is so long, but you know, the, the biggest one you're going to get, what would it weigh? Forty pounds? That that'd be a giant one, and it would come out of the big bush. The average uh, average out on the prairie is that 30, 35 pounds. Yeah. So like our, a lot of ours, like 50, 60. So you figure like you know, the animal's twice the size, so a lot more square inches. That's and they sold really well. Like a lot of guys here averaged 120, 130 Canadian. Wow. Yeah. And some guys higher. Yeah. Is it good quality fur or is it coarser? They're, 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 they're coarser. They're definitely coarser, but they're not silky and wispy like a, a nice prairie coyote. So the difference between a, a female fisher and a male fisher kind of thing. And that's probably the best uh, comparison you can give me right there. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay, but then they took and protected these red wolves or? Well, they didn't really, well, what happened was I had a trap line right on that park boundary, like I told you. Uh, Algonquin Park is, is quite a famous, famous uh, park, but yep. it's huge. And uh, what they did is they were doing the studies inside the park and going back into the 50s, Dr. Doug Pimlot did studies for the ministry and he killed hundreds of wolves in there doing studies on them. Then came this Tabers guy, and he, he carried on the research. His research ended up putting, putting a moratorium on, first of all, there's no trapping inside the park without exception. Golden Lake Indians, uh, that's their territory. They can trap inside there. The, okay. uh, the Golden Lake natives from Golden Lake. So what they did is they put a moratorium on all the townships budding on Duncan Park. So if you if you went around the whole the circumference of the park, all those townships of which mine was Boulder Township was one of those. That if you just took those townships and put them together, that land mass was bigger than the park itself. So the park was taken out of production, and also those townships. It was that decision that made me get rid of my trap line because I knew I'd lost my my ability to manage it because. If I can't take the wolves, I'm like, I was never, nobody likes to hear wolves howl more than me at night, but I don't want to meet everything on my trap line either. No. So I, over the years, you know, I'd, I'd look at some of the top trappers coming in here. They'd have like a hundred beavers in, in one bag. They have 20, 30 otters in another bag. They have like two, 300 muskrats, you know, 20, 30 foxes, four or five wolves. Like they were, they managed the thing. Yeah. The guys come in and say, you know, I, I don't have any beaver. The guy's got like 50 beavers in his bag and a few muskrats. And those guys never had, had any wolves in their bag. So, you know, a big part of a wolf and eastern coyote's diet, spring, summer, and fall, is is beaver. Well, to you know, quote a, a cliche, everything eats beaver. <laughs> and, and you don't begin unless you're a trapper. You don't begin to understand how important those beavers are, because you, you take in. And I have lots of beaver out on my on my big trap line out the on the big bush. And you walk, there's always a path along top, uh, along top of that uh, dam, you know. You walk along it, and there will be wolf tracks on it. There will be bear tracks on it all of year long, whenever, you know. Yeah. And, and in the wintertime, those, the, those wolves, I mean, the bears are dead, but the wolves will be walking along there still. Those beavers are, are very, very important. She, she will den where there's lots of beaver, you know. So you have no idea how many beaver actually exist in, the, in a beaver house, you know what I mean? Well, rendezvous sites and like denning locations are always in in their in our neck of the woods are always really close proximity to, to active beaver. Yeah, yeah, always. 
you um you brought up an interesting thing that when you were talking about how they used to fly your your um, trapline and they, and they would count the uh, the houses and that we might have a a 20 acre lake and it might have three beaver houses on it but only one of them will ever be active at a time is that similar there too or if you have three of them all three will be active often enough again it depends on your food source if, if the if the if the lake is ringed with conifers no but if it's like you know you know good good stuff like birch and aspen yeah they could all be lots of times in the winter time when i am trapping i'm 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 setting a beaver house i'm looking at the next one where i'm going oh really yeah we we, we have a lot of a lot of houses that are just abandoned and i think it's probably we don't have the food that you have you know we we have a lot more a lot of the, these uh, uh, ponds and that are in muskeg, which, you know, muskeg, of course, is, is black spruce right. and stuff, right? So they might, really what they're living off of is either cattails, uh, which they, they, they do really well off of cattails, or they'll, they will have, you know, small amounts of, uh, of low-growth um, willow and that in, in the riparian area between the edge of the lake and the, and the uh, conifers, right? Right. And, but they can only harvest so much of that. And then they, then they got to travel too far from that house. And so then they'll go to the next house over and, you know, and they just keep moving around the lake. You know, logging practices have a big influence on like beaver production here too. Like you're dealing with uh, like cold water systems. Like my old trap line was a cold water system and logging wasn't allowed within 200 meters of the lake. So basically all my lakes and ponds were just ringed with conifers. So if the beavers wanted to get at a fresh food source, they had to wade through like 200 yards of, of conifer tree to get into like maple or, or birch or whatever, right? Well, a beaver on land is pretty susceptible to wolf predation, bear predation, uh, big dog fisher predation on small beaver. But where on my trapline that I have now, it's warm water system like Nipissing. So they cut right to the water's edge. And what comes up is like what you want coming up, you know, like, can you get your when you get your birch and you get your, your aspen and stuff like that. So the beavers just basically roll out of the pond and start eating a tree. They don't have to wade through, a run the gauntlet of 200 acre, 200 yards of, of a conifer tree just to be picked up by the wolves. Can you explain the difference then? Well, like the definition, you said cold water and warm water. I, we don't have those ratings here. Well, you got like a, like a cold water system would be like a eutrophic lake, like a deep water system. Those watersheds, they really protect them. They, they don't want any erosion going into the, those water systems. Okay, okay. Yeah, I under, understand eutrophic and I understand that. We have very few of that around here. Just some in the far, far north where we get in, the shield actually gets into Alberta. Okay. And well, we have both. Like, if you have, like, usually you can say it like this. You have, like, a walleye lake. Yep. which the average depth is like 40 feet. And what's that's, that's a warm water system. That's like Lake Nipissing, the big lake here. Yeah. Then, you know, right across the road, about a mile and a half, there's Trout Lake, which is 300 feet deep. Well, there's, there's Lake Trout. That's a cold water system. Gotcha. So that, that's basically it. And, and over by where I trap, it's, it's all warm water systems. So the logging practices are different than, than in, in uh, an area where there's a lot of cold water systems. Oh, yeah. And in the and things like that. It supports more more yeah. of the food for for the beaver. You said another thing that I, I found really interesting. You said that big dog fisher will, will eat beaver. What do you do? You believe that otter eat beaver? Yeah, I, I've seen otter eat beaver. Have you? Yeah, 
I was, I was moose hunting a long time ago. Anyway, it was at my camp. I just got my caps to be like 92, 93. I'm sitting on, I'm sitting on a beaver dam and I just like a mile walk to my camp. It's on a big marsh. And I was just sitting, I was on my way out and I just sat down until, until dark. There was a beaver house in front of me in the open pond, probably 50 yards from me. And I could see a little beaver on the house. And he was just peeling a stick, like not a big beaver. And I'm talking like a kitten beaver. Uh, this would be like October. So this beaver would have been born in the springtime. So anyway, I'm watching it. And then I look up and I see like three V's coming down the watershed. I lift up my scope and uh, zoom in and it's like three otters coming. Oh, really? Yeah. So they get to within, I don't know, a stone's throw of the house. They all disappear. And uh, one of them pops up in front of the beaver, and the beaver just sitting there. The other one come up over top of the house and grabbed it and took it under. No kidding. Yeah. It's like they, they had, you could hear you know how they get up and they talk to one another. Yeah. <laughs> and they all disappeared. It was like, okay, you go and get his attention. I'll come over the back of the house and climb down and slide down and get him. I watched it with my own eyes. You, do you trap a lot of otter? Yeah, like when I was, when my quota was 225, I was usually getting, you know, 25 to 35 otters a year. Okay. So they're, they're caught as an incidental to your, to your no, 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 I, I target them too. There's no doubt I, I target them. But in those years, otters were bringing like 150, 160, 170. They're bringing. Yeah. Yeah. So like in those years, in the late, late nineties, early into 2000. So I pretty much paid all my expenses with just my otters. Yeah. And everything else was gravy. Did you catch them in blind sets or did you bait them or what? Well, I would say the majority of otter that come in here are accidental catches. But, but anybody that, like, that knows how to target otter, you can really, you can really hurt them if you, if you, you can overdo it because you can, you can definitely target them. A lot of blind sets, yeah, for sure. And uh, old, old abandoned houses. Yes, yes. Um, I for me, I'm not sure that it's it's more like like otter utilize the infrastructure that the beavers build, but I I catch my dozen otter every year. This year I got ten, and it was wasn't for lack of I I could have I could have uh, got my dozen easy. We have a quota that's a maximum I catch is twelve, but I have never have an otter go to a baited box, and I set mink boxes with with two twenties and and. Uh, a whole muskrat or a big chunk of beaver in the in the back and i set them right on the hole where they all come up on the beaver dam you know they come up through the ice net you know and the otters will go around the box or they'll walk right by it never pay any attention to it i'll have a mink there every time mink comes he's he's mine but the otter don't touch any of that meat so i'm, I'm always curious like do, do otter eat beaver or not <laughs> thing is an otter doesn't really need you to catch his lunch you know no. it, it swims everything it eats almost everything and he, even when they're they're hunting, they're having fun. Like they don't they don't they don't need to eat from some guy's bait dump or from a box. I, I I've done the same thing. I've tried lots of different sets. I have caught them though. I I can you can snare pretty proficiently. You take like a whitefish or a herring and put it on a pole, and like just wire. I used to get like herring and I used to freeze them on cookie sheets and I drill like two holes in it. Take a wire and bend it like this and slide it through the through the herring and puts it onto the pole. And just put three on a dry pole and then put three snares around. Put that in front of an old beaver house or set two or three out in front of the dam. And uh, I've caught lots of otters like that. That would make sense because, I mean, it's a fish. Yeah. Yeah. 
And what got me thinking about it is I, I used to snare a lot. I used to snare all my beaver in the wintertime. And I'd always use this like a set with a green pole. So my partner, Kenny Frederick, we'd go out like the day before and we'd cut like a hundred poplars, like eight feet long, about as big as my wrist. And we'd go into the camp and we'd just take haywire and, and tie one end to the other with, with a full length running down the, the pole. Throw them in the sleigh and we're good to go the next day. We get to the to the beaver house. One guy takes a chainsaw and cuts like three or four holes in front of the between the house and the feed bed. Or if the feed bed is up against the beaver house to the, to the left and the right. You know, yeah. sometimes the feed bed is right up against the house. Yes. And you put like a couple on each side of the feed bed. But if the feed bed's separate, you just make a, a wall between the house and the feed bed. Put three or four holes of the chainsaw, drive the pole down. When you pull the pole up, there's your water line. Take your sandvik and just scrape the bark off a couple of places like that. And then just same thing with the wire. Take three snares through that wire, twist it around the pole. Do that from the top to the bottom. So when you catch the beaver, the, the reason that, that that wire holds the whole thing together. So on top of the ice, you just pull that wire and drive a dry stick on top so that when you do get a beaver, if it's not frozen yet, it doesn't pull the pole down. That was the simplest set that I've used for years. And it's, it's not complicated, it's really easy. But I started, I started catching otters like that. And it's not like the otters were going to eat the poplar, but I think it was that in the darkness, they'd see the place where the bark was scabbed off. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That would make sense. Then I, then I thought, well, you know what, I'm gonna try, you know, you know, the herring. So I thought I'd really accomplish something. Well, I find out <laughs> at the convention, I was at the convention doing a seminar this one time, and, this little guy comes up and starts showing pictures. He's been doing it for like 25 years. <laughs> That's the amazing part, though, is that, uh, and I'm not really good at it. Like, I did, I dealt with a lot of people who have, you know, a particular animal that they're intuitive with, right? I mean, it, they're just in tune with that animal, whether it's wolves or lynx or whatever. They, yeah. they're, they're in tune. And I always look at them, and as soon as they explain, just like, what, you know, you're talking about your about your fish on the pole and that, and as soon as you explain, I mean, I get into uh, right right away, I get it, like, Boom! I, I see why it works, right? But I don't make that leap myself. Like I don't, I don't make that intuitive leap leap that way. Do you snare most of your beaver then, or do you do you catch them with the three thirties or? In in the fall, I usually like the last few years I have I haven't been able to do as much as I'd like to. I got a really good helper now, younger than me. Anyway, uh. <laughs> but uh, just because of the you know just the way the market is and that this the business here takes a lot more of my time the last couple of years. But in the fall, all 330s. Right. Open water stuff. And I try and get a lot of the anything that's gonna be anything that I can perceive as being a problem, like any like road access issues, like every culvert's getting a caught of air in each end of it. Uh, any place where it could be a flooded road or something, I get rid of those easy access beavers in the fall with caught of bears. And then the big lake I try and do my boat. And then in the wintertime, all all the 90% of my trap line is remote. I do all that back stuff by and I like it. the best time is to go in March when the, you know there's a good crust. Basically, the land's yours. Don't go we'll break a trail, and you can just go wherever you want. Yeah. And by, by March, the beavers you, you put a you put a popper stick down there. It's like feeding, <laughs> feeding a, a starving man a lobster. Like they go right away to that, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. They're, they're looking for it for sure. Yeah. You trap right on the big lake Lake Nipissing. Yeah, my camp's right on the lake on the west arm. I I don't know. Is that very is it, I always thought Nipissing was a very popular tourist destination. Well, I think Nipissing, it's like a thousand some miles all the way around if you went around the whole shoreline. It's a big lake. And I, I'm, I live in North Bay, but my trap line is in Sudbury District. And the West Arm, 
travels, goes up through a lot of narrows for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. It goes up to like one of the headwaters is Barlow Lake. It's not, if you look on the map, you can see where it's attached to Nipsey. It's called West Arm, but West Arm is like 75 miles of channels and, and oh, it's way up in there. So it's not right on the, like by boat, you're, you're like 40 minutes on, on right to the big, big body itself. But I'm up, I'm just north of the French River is where I am. Okay. French Rivers is the only discharge out of Nipissing. Okay. The trap line butts that right on the on the north end of uh, French. I was just wondering if, if you know, being on a, a, a lake that I'd heard of, I assumed it was a like a touristy lake where we, if you had any difficulties with, with Anki. No. No? No, no. Where That's I am, the West Arm, they're all, they're, you know, there's, there are some cottages on, on the big lake, but there's, there's, there's not, there's, there's very few people around where I am. Okay. Oh. Okay. Where do we go from here? Uh, we're, we, you're, you're having another uh, auction. You're going to have an actual auction or you, you, you hope you can have an actual auction at the end of August. Yeah, I know. Um, well, we had, everything was, was, everything was right there in uh, November. Uh, I had met with Napa's people. Um, we had, we had uh, come up with it. Well, anyway, we were going to have host our auction right there at Napa's facility. Right. And there was a lot of reasons for it. Uh, I, I seen what was happening with this, with this thing in December and January. And I thought, you know, we'll stay the course. We're going have to the, have the auction. It's easier to do it there because people can make quick travel arrangements to Toronto. Yeah. Get in and get out. Um, there was the issue with some of their inventory, uh, which anything that had been received, we, we had it. And it was, we just wanted to help the trappers out in general, no matter where you checked. We wanted to, we thought that would be in the best interest of having. So it was all set. The deal was made, ready to go. The invitations are out. Buyers were coming. And then the Milan Fur Fair came along. Well, no, China. China's was locked down. And right around that, when the Milan Fur Fair was happening in in February, China started to open up. So we, we had some confirmations. We had some actual confirmations of probably a dozen Chinese that were, had their tickets were set to come to, to Toronto. Then after the Milan Fair, we started getting calls and hearing rumors that Italy was in big trouble. Within two or three days, they were like full on a nightmare happening there. So we knew then that Italy got shut down. And right after that, Spain, all of Europe was in a, in a big mess. Korea, uh, so you're, we're watching like every day. There was another one of our major markets get picked off and picked off and locked out, and then Trudeau made you know pulled the trigger on international travel coming into Canada, which was the right thing to do anyway. But uh, then we knew right then we had, we had to cancel this thing. This all happened like the week before. I know our auction was like so. And we, we had taken on so much, like uh, we had brought, we, I, we hired who we could from, from NAFA that was, was going to be uh, valued where we, where we needed to shore up. For instance, like I spoke about Western Ontario, like right away when that, when, when I heard that they were in bankruptcy uh, protection from Deloitte, right away I contacted Winnipeg and, and I, I flew out there and two days later I had that facility, the Winnipeg uh, facility. And Mary's been, Mary's, I've always had a lot of respect for Mary. Like she's, 
she's got her hand on the ball. She knows she knows crapping just like I do, like you do. She knows the people. She's personable. She's professional. We all love Mary out here. <laughs> she, does a, she does a great job. So we we got that building. We 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 got Mary, and I basically said, listen, whoever you need there, we have Darcy and the, the guys that were working there. We took on all that. We we said, okay, well, with the amount of fur we got in this facility right now, we're we're not gonna be able to handle everything else that's coming because clearances haven't been been the best from last season. Uh, so we got a big operation in Wisconsin, and now we got the one in Winnipeg and North Bay. So we decided that, okay, our plan of action is all the raccoon are going to be graded in Wisconsin. We got Greg Schroeder who ran Napa's Wild Fur Operation for years and years. He's been working for me now for 15 years. He's a great guy. And a uh, heck of a man with a knife, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. He's, 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 a, fur, he's a fur fanatic. Oh, yeah. So anyway, I kind of, uh, Greg looks after everything coming in from the Midwest there. And everything, he tickets and receives everything there. And then I said, okay, all the coons are going to be left there. Any of the raccoons we get here are going to be shipped there. So all the raccoons are being graded by Greg. And all the Western coyotes are going to be done in Winnipeg. That's the way we handle it. Okay. And everything else is done here. So all that was going off without a hitch. And then we find out that air travel's canceled. So it's like, now what? We got all this fur, everything graded, everything ready to go. The sample's pulled. Everything's getting ready to go to Toronto. So our team, we got a guy named Demetrius Colliot, who's my finance officer here, but he's, he's also in charge of our computer networking and program. He developed in like three days an online auction yeah and another guy that helped him who's, who's a great asset here is howard noldworthy our planning and development officer he he worked closely with them and they developed this thing and like put it together in like three or four days and i was really skeptical because it's not that i'm old school but i, I just know this business it's it's like wild fur like fingerprints it's not like ranch mink where yeah the raised in a controlled environment it's like buying dollar bills you know if the grade says you know black glamma ones well they're all black glamour ones yeah but, Wild fur, it's like fingerprints, like yours are different than mine. And I had a hard time thinking that people were going to buy in a big way without looking at the goods. I was, I was pleasantly surprised. Like we, on um, uh, beavers, we did really, really, really well at a price level, which was like maize last year, like $60 maize US, which was, which is pretty good money considering the, the way the world is. Muskrats, we sold lots. Eastern coyotes, we sold lots. Heavy, heavy Canadian, Western coon, we sold lots. But like I said earlier, the fancy items like the fancy Western Bob, I mean, uh, coyotes, fancy Western cats, sables, it's, we didn't hardly have a bite on that. At all. Right, right. So the stuff that we did sell, the money came in really quick. We've been clearing like crazy. We just have another transport leaving here today with probably 300 bales of beaver on it. So that, that's the sign that there, there's definitely demand. Like there's, there's still demand that people want the goods. But again, stuff we didn't sell, they want to see it. Yeah. So we've been watching this thing as, as best as we can. And we know we gotta we gotta have some we gotta have an auction. So we plan for I know the big the big European auction houses that are that are left is, is Finland and Copenhagen. They've they've scheduled for September. So we took the position as we we're gonna try and get in in August and sell before them because you mentioned you want to get you want to get out of the house. Well, the buyers want to get out of the house. I figure if we go first, then uh, we're going to have a 
you're going to have a big welcome party here for first. So anyway, we scheduled scheduled it. We'll be on show August the 16th through the 19th, and then selling August 20, 21, 22. Excellent. First case scenario is that only Canadian brokers can, can attend. That's the worst case. That's the worst case. But that's still better than last time because we couldn't have anybody attend. Nobody looked at anything. I know. We had some of our staff run around taking pictures of it. You take a picture of a, a Western Coyote, the good one, and the one next to it, you can't tell the difference in the picture. But No, it, I, was, I was amazed that you sold anything. I mean, it was astounding, you know. <laughs> yeah, but that shows that there, there is the demand. There's the appetite for it. They need it. So that's the worst case scenario, Rich. I think that, that there'll be some, there's a lot of good brokers and merchants that are out of like Montreal, uh, Vancouver, Toronto, they'll, they'll be able to come. And it's a big world, but the fur business is real tight, small. And, and a lot of these people that might still be locked down in Italy, they're gonna know the broker that's here in North Bay from, that came from Montreal. These brokers that can come, they're going to get on the phone and they're going to capitalize on, on the situation. Like they're going to make a catalog. They're going to come here and look at the goods and they're going to call all these people in areas where they can't come. That if, if that's what happens, certain areas can't come. So we're going to, sales going to take on a, a bit of a stronger position as far as we will be able to have people here. Hopefully, if the U.S. come, we'll be able to, if it opens up there, we'll be, it'll be even better. I'm thinking China will, certain places in China will be able to come. Korea, I'm not sure, but nobody knows it's a moving target, but I'm, I'm pretty certain that we'll have some pretty good, we could have like 20 some good brokers from Canada alone here. Okay. And do, are you just using the catalog you had from, from the online uh, auction or, or are you receiving new goods now? No, we're, we're receiving, we're receiving new goods. Like we're, we're, my team's just doing, doing the check run here. Now we did is, and I apologize to everybody, and I put this out in a press release. I said, we delayed the prompt date by two weeks just because, first of all, the online auction was, was a completely foreign thing to us. And right after the auction, we started getting calls. Guys needing goods. They couldn't register. They weren't comfortable putting their bids on the Internet, multitude. So, and we said, okay. So we, we kept the private treaty thing going for two weeks because bottom line is we want to get as many trappers paid as possible with this Make, make the check worthwhile. So those checks are being mailed right now. Uh, the wire transfer has been out already, but they're, 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 the mailing will be going out today, tomorrow, the next day. So I told in that in that in the mailing, we put in a flyer that the trappers have to monitor our website as jurisdictions open up. Routes are going to become available. So like our truck is running in Saskatchewan, Ian Breguer, Dan Beaver. He's running right now as we speak. Um, Alberta's um, is going to be doing their their run the Alberta Trappers. Uh, Kevin Klein is going to put out the uh, notice here in the next little while. New Brunswick is doing theirs, but all as our agents as the, as the territories and states open up, our agents are going to send us their pickup schedule and we'll put it on the internet. Okay. So we are running routes and and some of them are being run as we speak. So what we're going to do is we'll take what whatever is coming in on this next auction it'll just be added to the collection that's that's here now okay where give us your your address on the internet for people to check on uh, on for announcements and all for harvesters.com for harvesters.com okay uh, what happened with 
you guys were going to auction uh, the old goods from uh, NAFA. What happened with that? You were going to do an, an, a separate auction just just to help get the trappers paid, right? Some uh, the the stuff that that NAFA already had from yes before they were they were doing their own. Oh, what they were okay. Yeah, when, when we, the way we did is we were going to sell our stuff. And as soon as we were finished, they, their auctioneer would step up and sell. They figured they had about four or five hours of selling. I, I think they probably sold some of that private treaties during the, the last little while, or it's been, it's been available. But what happened was there was still goods that were being shipped in there. A lot of trappers didn't know what happened. And some trappers still don't know what happened. Yeah. So they were still shipping. They were still receiving shipments. That's, that stuff came to us and that was put right in with the, it was graded right in with our, with our fresh assortment. Okay. Okay. Uh, there was people that shipped there that had beaver, whatever, that we graded it and they got paid. Okay. All right. I know I have some, some goods that are still there and I, nothing that I know of has happened with it, but what happens happens. I mean, it's the, the, the way of the world. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, right? Yeah, well, that, that's it. I think a trapper's life is gamblers. They're gamblers, no doubt about it. Whether you like it or not, gambling on walking on bad ice or, you know, which auction you would figure is going to hit the market the best, you know, where you're going to sell. So it's, it's, everything in life is this way. Well, it's certainly been uh, quite the year. Uh, and you guys have, uh, have struggled. We went from the incredible highs, you know, when that uh, November was, was, was looking up, it was looking like, it was the auctions were going to set records, you know, and I mean, a lot of it was being carried along by the coyotes, but uh, the rest of the, of, of the fur buoyed up pretty good for, you know, even in, in the pre-sales to the, to the fur buyers, that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, for sure. We had a lot of interest. We had a lot of buyers confirmed to come in. a lot of new faces. That's good. Yeah, that's good. That's what, that's what the whole, the whole industry needs, right though. We need, we need every now and then you got to have a shakeup so that uh, all of a sudden people say, Hey, I never, never thought of that before. I didn't know that was going on or whatever. Well, this has been a shakeup. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a busy man, sir. And I really appreciate your time. Um, I just got to leave one story here. This is the, the day I met you and you probably won't remember it, but you were in a pretty serious discussion with a fellow from the other auction house and he was trying to convince you that you should no longer take muskrats or squirrels. And yeah. because they were, it was so hard to sell them and you didn't make much on them. And you said, I don't care if I sell them for a penny. He says, just about every kid out there starts trapping with, with muskrat or, or a squirrel. And he says, and you said, I'm not going to take that away from them, the, the, the chance to, to do that. And I, I hard, learned your name about two minutes before, before that. And I was so impressed with that statement. I got to tell you. <laughs> um, and, and ditto for you and the work you do too. Well, Thanks a lot. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time. And I hope everybody enjoyed their time with us today. Uh, we're going to do this again. We'll do it in person. Okay. We'll, we'll come there and, and see you guys. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, I'll bring my wife along. She'll keep it going for a long time. <laughs> Thanks for reaching out and uh, contacting. It's been a great pleasure. All the best to you and your wife. Thank you. Take care, and everybody will be able to see you down the line.